Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark in the uh, dynamic duo, Chuck Bryant. Two men. Yeah. Eight limbs. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. I guess so. I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, we're fully intact. Yeah, and I think um, I think missing a limb or a finger or a toe or anything like sure. that, um, is, I guess it's not something you think about until after it happens, and then it probably becomes one of the central foci of your life. Do you know anyone missing a limb? Uh, no. No? As a matter of fact, I don't. Do you? Uh, yeah, I worked with a guy at my last job who uh, had an accident, a biking accident, mm. uh, with a truck. Not true. Not true. Go ahead. <laughs> I just had to remind myself. Uh, of what? Oh, my brother-in-law's father oh, okay. has a, a part of partial finger amputation. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. This, this guy lost his arm. The whole arm? <laughs> yeah. What happened? Um, biking on the side of the road and uh, oncoming truck, uh, the side view mirror basically clipped him at the oh. uh, armpit. And Did it take it clean off? or I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, I guess if it would have taken it clean off, they probably would have done a replantation. Yeah, maybe. Which we talked about. Yeah. So this is, a, a, I guess, a follow-up in a mini-suite. I like to think of it as a part of a larger suite. We've done Broken Bones. Yeah. We've done um, uh, Replantation. Uh-huh. I think it's called Your Limbs Torn Off, Now What? Right. Uh, and then this one, How Amputation Works. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good nice suite. Yes, it is. What else <laughs> could we possibly add to that? I don't know, because we're going to cover uh, uh, sexual fetishes around limb loss and mm-hmm. phantom limb pain, and so I think that's that's all encompassing, sir. I think this will finish it off. Yeah, it's a Mitch Hedberg term, what all is? encompassingly. Really? <laughs> yeah, that was one of his bits. Uh, Chuck, yes, have you? Uh, surely, I know that you've heard of Aaron Ralston. Yeah, was, saw, saw the movie and everything. There's 127 hours, right? Um, yeah, I think that's right. The name of the movie? Yeah, I'm doubting it all of a sudden, the number of hours. Seems right, though. Right. Yeah. Um, Good movie. Did you see it? Oh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. James Franco was just like, oh, I'm doing so great in the middle of yeah. the movie. Didn't he look at the camera? He's like, aren't I just doing awesome? <laughs> I like that guy. Yeah, I do, too, but he likes himself as well. Yeah, and hey, Danny Boyle, he makes a great movie. Is that who directed that? Yeah, I like he's all over the map, like genre wise, and I really have an mm. appreciation for people that sure. don't make the same movie over and over. Right. You know. Hats off for that. Yeah. Um, have you seen her? Yeah, I just saw it. God, that is a good movie. Yeah, very good movie. I was surprised at how good it was. I thought it was I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, back to 127 <laughs> hours. That yeah. movie by Danny Boyle is about a real life incident that happened to a guy named Aaron Ralston in two thousand three. In May of 2003, he was a, uh, and I, I take it he still is, a real like outdoorsy go-getter, sure. can't keep me down kind of guy, a uh, very independent spirit, so much so that he went canyoning by himself um, in May of 2003. And while canyoning, there was a, a shift with one of the boulders that he was leaning on or next to or something, and it... Well, his, he, he slipped down into a crevasse. Is that what it was? And a boulder landed on top, wedging his arm in there. Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen the movie in a little while. Yeah. Plus, I wasn't there when it happened. <laughs> um, and so he's he's trapped 
like alone, no cell service, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, he was just totally screwed as much as a person could be screwed. Yeah. The one saving grace that Aaron Ralston had, the two saving graces that Aaron Ralston had, uh-huh. was a pocket knife. Yeah. And nerves of steel. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Because I was like, if he doesn't say intestinal fortitude or yeah. something like that, then yeah. I have to add a third thing. Yeah, because, I mean, there's not – I don't think that that many human beings could pull that off. So I, we should say, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, you should see it anyway, but he cuts yeah. his own hand off. He cut a portion of his arm off. He yeah, did what's called hand. a lower extremity amputation. Oh, I thought that'd be an upper – Upper. Yeah. That's what I meant. Oh, okay. I was thinking lower on the arm and that <laughs> yeah, was right. stupid. But um yeah, he, he without any sedation whatsoever. No. After having gone about five days without water, a few days without water. Yeah. He was trapped there for five days with no hope that he was going to be helped. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um he broke his arm. Yeah. And then after he broke his arm, he cut through the skin and the tendons and the muscles and all the sinew yeah. around, you know, through the break in the bones and then cut his his lower arm off. Yeah, and remember he had dulled his knife from trying to chip away at the stone for days. And, oh, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so if he had done it initially, it, it would have been easier. So he had yeah. just like this dull blade. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's a tough scene to watch for sure, but I think they handled it well and... Uh, it's a great story. Yeah, and he is like, oh, I should say also we should finish it. He hiked out. Yeah, rappelled um, down, hiked out. Six six miles Yeah, before he, he finally found somebody to, to drive him to the hospital. Yeah. And I think he even stopped and did a little, like, spelunking along the way or something like that. <laughs> no, he went straight to the hospital. Uh, well, he was probably doing all sorts of outdoorsy activities right afterwards. He's, like I said, one of those people you can't keep down. But um, in this article, it's a pretty good article. About amputation. Agreed. Um, the author makes the point that Aaron Ralston is a great example of amputation in that um, it's a last resort, typically. Sure. Like, you don't just go, let's try amputation, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, if we don't amputate, you're going to die, usually. Yeah. So, it also, he also provides the um, the uh, point that your, your life doesn't end when you undergo an amputation. That's right. Like there's all sorts of things that kind of get you back on track. And it's a lot of work and it's a suck thing to happen, I imagine. But when you do have um, limbs amputated, uh, y- your life isn't over, basically. And we'll, we'll talk about True. that, too. But um, you want to get into amputation? You want to talk about the history of this stuff? Uh, yeah, man. It's um, History is like all old medical history involving surgery. It's pretty grisly. Um it dates all the way back to ancient times. They found archaeological proof that they performed the procedure many, many, many years ago. About 7,000 years ago, they found a grave of oh, a man really? who had had his lower arm amputated and had healed. Yeah, what they found, the difference is, though, back then, they were moving dead tissue, tissue that was already dead, because <laughs> they didn't know how to stop bleeding at right. the time. So they obviously couldn't uh, cut any uh, healthy blood flow, any arteries or blood vessels. Right. So they had to cut off tissue that was just, like you said, already dead. Yes. And there wasn't any blood flowing to it. No blood. No. Uh, and then, of course, in Rome and mm-hmm. Greece, they were smart and they advanced the, the process and actually uh, were the first to tie off these blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Is that called legating? 
Yeah. Okay. Like ligature marks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that would stop the blood flow. And they did a good job with that, but it seems that people forgot about that, and they didn't do that for another few hundred years afterward. No, and not only did they forget about that, the Romans and the Greeks both used um, wine and vinegar as antiseptics during surgery, too, and people just lost that, too. I wonder if that worked. I think probably better is better than nothing, I would guess. Um, So, like I said, they forgot for a couple hundred years or a few hundred, and then... and started cauterizing wounds instead, which, as we all know, is burning a blood vessel shut. Or dipping it in boiling oil. That's one way. Yeah. Or just the old hot poker <laughs> treatment. Um, yeah, just awful. I bet yeah, that's it's like, say goodbye thing. to your leg yeah. and then say hello to this hot boiling oil. <laughs> wow. I wonder how well it worked, though. I mean, at least as far as keeping the person alive and staving off infection. I mean, I think that, I don't know about the infection part, but back then, I think they just wanted to keep someone alive. Do you remember in Rainbow 3, when he gets shot in the side, and he cauterizes his wound by pouring some gasoline in and lighting it on fire? (laughs) I don't remember that. Oh, man. He did that? Yeah. Wow. This, like, blue flame, like, shoots through his abdomen, (laughs) and he goes, It's the best acting Stallone's ever done. Wow. I don't know that I agree with that, but it's impressive. You should watch it. See what you think. Okay. Okay. I put First Blood on my uh, I saw that. On my list, but I haven't heard any chiding yet. On your list of 100 greatest movies of all time? That's right. Um, but Rambo 3 was not on there. <laughs> it was still pretty good. Okay, I'll check it out. Remember, he was fighting with the Taliban, the Mujahideen. Oh, was at the Middle Those East. Those are the freedom fighters that he was helping fight the Russians. I actually don't know if I saw Rambo 3 now that I think about it. That's a good one. Um, all right, so amputation advanced, of course, over the years uh, after the cauterization um, debacle, and in wartime or after wartime, mm-hmm. with no surprise, is when they made a lot of these advances, uh, especially in France, with a surgeon named a military surgeon named Ambroise Paré. I don't know if he's related to Michael or not, <laughs> but um, <laughs> he, uh, of course, with gunpowder and bullets and cannonballs and things, we saw like. Injuries like we'd never seen before. Yeah, we can we can thank those things for advancement of yeah. of amputation. Totally successful amputation. Right. Um, so that was one of the big reasons that Pere was uh, uh, effective, and he was basically the first guy to bring back the the lig- ligating. That yeah, sounds weird. To he me. rediscovered it. Yeah, in 1529, which is said that it took that long from ancient Rome to 1529. Yeah, yeah. for somebody to be like, "Oh, what if we just like tied these things shut? Now burn it, right? Oh, really? I got the hot oil ready already. <laughs> it's too late for your advancement." And that is how fondue was born. <laughs> oh. They're like, "We got the hot oil ready." He said, "We don't need it. Put some meat oh. on a stick, gotcha, and have at it." Oh no, you thought I was talking about like body parts? Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not a monster. Um, <laughs> then I thought it was funnier when you were a monster. <laughs> uh, then the tourniquet was invented in 1674, which kind of surprises me that because that seems more rudimentary than any of this it's stuff. Another bonehead invention. Yeah, it's like why didn't no you you come up with this stuff before you cut people's limbs off? <laughs> That'd be nice. Uh, and then anesthetic, of course, uh, in the 1840s with anesthetic gas went a long way toward uh, performing these surgeries. You know. Without a lot of pain. Yeah. And here in the Western world, the American Civil War was a huge Dude. springboard to um, understanding amputa- 
amputation techniques. They might as well call it the amputation war. Right. Just from sheer volume of amputations, a lot of doctors who got their nickname Sawbones from amputating, sawing through bones and yeah. all that, um, just the number of amputations that they performed formed this body of knowledge that carried on after the war. Yeah, 50,000, more than 50,000 amputations in the Civil War. And uh, this this is also hard to believe, but I guess it's hard to go back in time and realize if they just didn't know something, they didn't know it yet. Mm-hmm. It seems like a no-brainer now that keeping a surgical environment clean should just be innate in a surgeon. But back then, they didn't know that. They didn't understand bacteria like they do now. They didn't know germs. Yeah. And so it was like a, a stamp of uh, experience to have a bloody surgical gown. So surgeons would like purposefully not change their clothes and things mm. because they were like, hey, look at my bloody gown. I did, I did eight amputations today. Right. Beat that. So, yeah, exactly. Trapper John. <laughs> um, they would douse them with a chloroform-soaked rag, put on the tourniquet, and... Slice through everything, and then, like you said, get out the old saw, bone saw, yeah, and uh, take care of business, basically. And then they would just toss the limb onto a pile, which grew pretty quickly. Yeah, and there's plenty of old photographs of limb piles from the Civil War. Yeah, uh, one out of four patients died uh, in those days after an amputation, and that doubled if it didn't happen in the first 24 hours. Right, but a lot of people's lives were saved. From sure. a- battlefield amputations. Yeah, and most of those, I think, were probably um, bacterial uh, due to infection and not necessarily like just bleeding out or a mistake or something. Right, which we should say at this point, the whole reason to amputate is because you often have a wound or a diseased part of your body um, that's creating dead tissue. And that site of dead tissue is a really great place for bacterial infections to take root and take hold. The problem with the bacterial infection is that it tends to spread yeah. toward the rest of your body. Sure. So the point of amputation, almost across the board, is to prevent the spread of infection yeah. in the rashest way possible, which is why amputations typically are just the last resort. Yeah. You're trying to stop this infection from spreading, and if you literally separate it from the rest of the healthy body, right. that should do the trick, and it frequently does. Yeah, um, and I think the final advancement, well, not the final advancement, of course, it's still advancing, mm-hmm. but the last big advancement was was with the infections, and a uh, British surgeon named Joseph Lister um, was known as kind of the father of antiseptic uh, sur- surgery. Yeah, Listerine. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Is that where it comes from? Mm-hmm. No way. Of course it is. Yeah. I never put those two together. Boom. Did he make any money off that? Like, was it actually his company or did they just... I don't know. Interesting. So he was the first guy. He used something called carbolic acid. Which is Listerine. <laughs> probably is. They used it back then to prevent wood rot and to treat sewage. Uh-huh. So I guess they just knew it was good for, for stopping bacteria. I'll bet that cauterizes wounds, too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he would spray it on surgical tools and uh, incisions and dressings and even people mm-hmm. uh, in the surgery room. He would spray them with it. Stand still. And then he would uh, he was the first to stress hand washing and clean gloves and things like that. So uh, hats off to you, Mr. Lister, Dr. Lister. Well, he was one of those people who like made up a handful of human beings who have saved billions of people's lives. Yeah. Just from their innovations and their insights. True. Um, so 
uh, amputation. It's been around for a while. And that's just surgical amputation. There's evidence of amputation for um, religious self-sacrifice uh, as far back as like 30,000, 40,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, it was very, for a long time, it was a punishment. The um, word amputatio or amputatio mm-hmm. is uh, Roman for, well, it's a punishment. It's synonymous with punishment. And it meant like you had your hands chopped off. Yeah, like if you steal uh, something, you, mm-hmm. then symbolically they would cut off your hand. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, it was even, amputation was even inscribed as a punishment uh, in the first written law, the Code of Hammurabi. Yeah. If you were a doctor and you lost a patient, well, you should lose one of your hands. That was the code. That, that just makes that so counter to trying to make doctors better, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we want you to be a better doctor, so we're going to remove one of your hands. Right. You're worried about tort law. Think about how good you have it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like you said, the reason, um, there are a couple of reasons you would get an amputation. Uh, one is disease, and the other is um, injury, like my friend with the truck. Yeah. Like some kind of... Catastrophic injury, uh, damages, it doesn't necessarily always like rip your arm off, but it damages it to the point where there's no blood flowing there and the right. tissue is dying beyond the point where it can be rescued. Right. Essentially. And it might be a truck, it might be a bullet wound, um, it could be, well, basically any traumatic injury, a fire, a burn, a severe burn is considered a traumatic injury. Yeah, blood flow is big. If it's not flowing, then problems happen. You're going to have a stroke if it stops flowing. You're mm-hmm. going to lose an arm if it stops flowing. Sure. So uh, if your blood flow is cut off for too long, then you're in big trouble. Right. And it's not just a traumatic injury. Disease, um, there are plenty of diseases that see a, uh, a lessening of blood flow, like um, arteriosclerosis, sure. which is plaque buildup on blood vessels. Yeah. When it builds up enough and enough, those blood vessels harden, and the uh, amount of blood flow through those vessels diminishes so much that the tissue that those blood vessels feed uh, dies. Um, there's something called uh, peripheral artery disease, which is the result of a lack of blood flow leading to dead tissue. Yeah. Um, it's and big in diabetics. Yeah. You, you join that with di- diabetes, which has the tendency to also kill nerve endings, neuropathy. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden you can't feel. So when you cut yourself, say you cut your foot or something like that, um, you don't feel it, so you're more prone to cuts, and it takes longer to heal because of the lack of circulation, and all of a sudden you have an infection that possibly turns gangrenous and threatens your entire life. Yeah, and uh, in the U.S., 90% of amputations are as a result of this disease scenario. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're under 50, um, traumatic injury is the leading cause. Of amputations. Yeah, so like, you know, you're out riding your bike on, yeah. a, on a mountain road or you're Aaron Ralston and you're mountaineering in Utah. Yeah. You know? I would call that a, a traumatic injury, getting yeah. your hand pinned under a boulder. For sure. Man, could you imagine? And they did a good job in the movie, but as it sets in, like what the deal is, because at first he was like, oh, man. Yeah. Like, he tried for let, a me while get, let me get out of this yeah. mess. Yeah, or trying to move the boulder. Yeah. It was like nothing. And then all of a sudden you think, I might die of starvation. Yeah. And, and then your eye just goes over to the knife like, man. Yeah. I wish I hadn't adulted. it. <laughs> uh, so then there's cancer, which we haven't mentioned. Um, there are a couple of ways that it could lead to amputation, obviously just damage to your body tissue. Um, but also, like you said, to keep a malignant tumor uh, from spreading around, mm-hmm. sometimes they will just lop it off. Yeah. 
And apparently those amputations from uh, cancer have diminished tremendously over the last decade or two. Um, But unfortunately, those from disease have increased. Yeah, 50%. It's dropped by 50% over the past 20 years. Amputations overall? No, just from uh, from cancer, traumatic injury, and cancer. I got you. Um, so I don't know if people are being safer in their recreation if that has something to do with it or not, or if they're or maybe, just getting better. Yeah, we might have better trauma. Yeah, or medicine. better reattaching too. Yeah. Um, but yes, you are right. It has increased uh, because of uh, at least in the United States, largely due to obesity. So much so that this article was from um, maybe two two thousand six. Something like that. Uh-huh. And it says that one out of every 200 Americans is an amputee. That's not right anymore. Well, no, it's actually even more. One out of, from what I could find, 176 wow. Americans. So it's 1.7 million people. One out of 100. That seems like a lot of people. Yeah. But that counts digits and things that you don't think about. You know, like someone lost a thumb. Right. Because I hear that and I'm like, why don't I see that more on a daily basis? You don't work in the industrial arts. Yeah, that's true. I don't work in a factory. With lots of saws and chains and yeah. pulleys. That's a good point. You go to Alaska, I bet every like third person has a limb that's missing. <laughs> you don't see it a lot in the podcasting field. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to prepare you for surgery, Dr. Clark, <laughs> right after this message break. Wait, I'm doing the surgery, right? Oh, yeah. Always. Okay. Okay, so preparing for amputation surgery is like every surgery. Initially, you're going to have a lot of meetings. And, uh, Always with the meetings. I know, because they want you to be prepared, and you're going to have everything very uh, explained very well and what you can expect before, during, and after, uh, just like with all surgeries, how, what kind of anesthesia they're going to use. Um, yeah. It's not always general anesthesia. I knew this would stand out to you, too. Yeah, I would not want to be awake. No. Knock me out. Cut my toe off. I don't care. Yeah. I better be out. Well, actually, I'll take that back. If it was like a, just a digit, I could stomach that. Not me. I don't know if I'd watch it. At the very least, I I wouldn't. It'd be boring. Oh, I think it'd be fascinating. Well, I mean, you couldn't see anything. You'd just be sitting there like, these guys are cutting my finger off right now. I think I'd arrange a mirror or something. Yeah. I used to get that at the dentist. I used to request a mirror so I could look at what they were doing. Mm. I think just because it fascinated me. And to keep an eye on them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, they sometimes use just local anesthetic to, to carry out a amputation. That's nutty. Um, if it's a, a limb. I don't think they would do that. No, that's got to be general anesthetic. Yeah, because I think, like, if you weren't under, your blood pressure would rise to sure. dangerous levels. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to get a prosthetic device, you might meet beforehand with your prosthetist. Uh, to measure you out and kind of talk about what you're looking for post-surgery. Yeah. And um, then you're going to, you know, then it's go time. I guess it is kind of go time. The, well, the the surgeon's going to want to figure out exactly where to cut Sure. ahead of time. It's not like, eh, how about here? They actually measure blood flow to the area um, to see what tissue is still receiving you know, circula- a healthy amount of circulation. Yeah, they don't want to leave any bad tissue behind. No, but they want to get as much of the bad tissue as they can, which is what you just said. Yeah. But they also want to leave intact as much healthy tissue as yes. possible, which is why they, they measure and they try to find that line of demarcation 
where they should cut. Yeah, they said, especially around the joints, uh, they want to preserve all the healthy stuff they can because uh, if your joint is working, then that's going to help you out with your prosthetic limb. Oh, yeah. If they know? if they can do anything to save a joint, they're going to leave it intact. Yeah. Um, so they, they figure out where to cut. They uh, try to leave a, a joint as intact as possible. Yeah, and this is all the non-emergency variety. Exactly. Kind of yeah, like all of this planning and everything, yeah. it goes out the window when you come in with a shotgun blast to yeah. your lower leg. Exactly. Um, they, they're going to be like, we need to amputate. We have to do this quick. And they do. And they'll, you don't have to meet with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's the plus side. Yeah. No meetings. Um some of the uh, techniques they use, to, or actually, let's just go ahead and walk you through okay. the, the process. All right. So, everyone, please. I love how this, operating this article points out that the first thing they cut through is the skin. <laughs> right. They cut through the imaginary barrier and the air above the skin first, technically. Of course, you're going to cut through the skin, and uh, you want it to heal quick. And uh, they said leave an appropriate scar, which doesn't mean for cosmetics. Like, don't you don't leave your... Your initials as a scar or something. <laughs> no, what they mean is they don't want to leave a scar where it might rub up against your uh-huh. prosthetic or something and cause problems. Yeah, that can't be good. No. Um, so they they cut through the skin, and pretty soon after that, they meet muscle. Yeah. Mr. Muscle, and this makes up the, the bulk of what they're cutting through. Yeah. And I only, like, within the last year or so, realized that muscle is what steak is. Did I tell you this? Yeah, you told me this. It's just crazy to me. Like I, I, I used to be like, okay, so you got muscle, you have the skin, you have the bone. What's the beef? Like, what's the steak? <laughs> and then I realized, like, oh, muscle's the steak. Yeah. And I was like, I'd make a good steak. <laughs> now you'd be sinewy. So <laughs> I'd make a good steak. <laughs> so with with the muscle, they're they're they want to they have to cut through it, but they want to save a little bit of length of it as much as possible. Yeah. Um. That's your padding, basically. Yeah. They're going to fit it around the bone at the bottom. It, it is. It's the padding on the bottom, the the exposed part of the of the residual limb, which is what the yeah. stump is called. You shouldn't call people's residual limb stumps. Is that true? Yeah. Well, then why do they use it 50 times in this article? They finally get to the point where they're like, which oh, by is the way. residual <laughs> limb, which is the preferred term. I think my friend called his a stump. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you have an amputated limb, you can call it whatever you want. Right. It's like, you can't pick on my brother. I, well, only I can pick on my brother? Sure. Okay. It's along the same lines. Gotcha. So we've cut through the skin, uh-huh. the the muscle. Yep. Now what? Uh, you've got your nerves. Oh, man. I know. It's the worst It, it just part. sends a chill up my spine thinking about it. Um, you have to cut through the nerves, obviously. And then uh, what they want to do, you're going to have, you know... Where you cut the nerve is going to be a nerve stump. Now, that's okay to call it a stump because yeah, it's sure. just the nerve, you exactly. know? Exactly. Um, and they still carry signals uh, of pain sometimes even. Mm-hmm. And so they do their best to minimize what we're going to talk about next, which is phantom limb pain, right. by sewing nerve endings uh, into the tissue around it and even cutting it off, uh, cutting the nerves off higher up than the amputation site to try and prevent that Um but thanks to you and that article you sent me, we learned that uh, phantom limb pain actually occurs in the majority of patients who lose their limbs. I didn't know that. It sounded like 
a rarity to me. No, I think it's like, um, I think it's like not a given necessarily, but I think that it's very common. Should we go ahead and cover it now and then yeah, let's. finish up with the surgery? Yeah. So like you said, when you, just when you cut through. Gas them up. Right. <laughs> we'll be back. Right. You just <laughs> sit still. Um, when you cut a, uh, a nerve, um, fiber. Sure. Um, you're, it's still, even though there's a stump mm-hmm. and there's, it's not connected to anything anymore down there, it can still transmit information to the brain and it still does. And your brain has been, it's developed this, uh, certain kind of arrangement of neurons, say, that have to do with your lower leg. Your lower left leg yeah. is in this one region of your brain. And the thing is, when you amputate your lower left leg, your brain doesn't really get the news yeah. that it's not there anymore. Or at least, at the very least, it confuses it. It does. Yeah. And it makes the brain think that you have a lower left leg still, but you're just not using it. Well, your brain has this technique for telling you when it's like you need to use your limbs or get up or move around or do something. Yeah. Um, and that's by sending a, a painful sensation from the leg to the brain to you to experience it. Yeah. And when that leg's not there and your brain thinks it still is and you're not using it, then what you have is something called phantom pain. Yeah. And that can be, it's not just like, Oh, it hurts a little bit. Um, it hurts a lot, apparently. Yeah. Um, burning, aching sensations mm-hmm. as if the hand is being crushed in a vice. Mm-hmm. So say some. And here's the the bad news is that it is um, chronic. And once it happens and persists, it's there. Yeah. Like it's tough to get rid of. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think they only, I think in this article they said they only, um, these other post-surgeries to limit that are only effective for a few months. And it usually returns, and so they usually don't even do those surgeries unless you're terminal. Yeah, uh, and apparently, Chuck, drugs don't necessarily do a lot. Oh, like uh, pain drugs? Yeah, like yeah, it so. can't help. I think you get used to it, and it's still not really helping very much. So they have some pretty interesting radical treatments that apparently work. And one of the best ones is a mirror box. Yeah, this is so cool. So you like have a box that you put your hand into and then your residual limb into. In the same box. Yeah. And the mirror, the mirrors inside basically make it look like you have two limbs. Yeah. Both intact. Mm-hmm. Facing the, the correct way. Yeah. And then you move the intact one and it looks like your, um, residual limb is now moving. And you basically. It's your eye sends a signal to the brain. Exactly. Yeah. And you trick your brain into thinking like, okay, I'm moving my limb. You can stop sending me the pain signals now. And it's it amazing. works yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, and even more amazing is they don't even know if they need a mirror box. They think simply um, imagining mm-hmm. using that limb could work. Like golfing? Yeah, like so just imagine you're you're swinging a golf club mm-hmm. with your phantom with your limb that's not there anymore. Right. And they think that can actually work. Yeah. Um they're also trying to figure out how to uh replasticize the brain so that it can um it can rearrange itself to basically be aware that there's no limb there any longer, and yeah. it does it, it can ignore sensory signals from that area. What they're um, doing is, is they're working on the brain now instead of the site of the amputation, like the physical site. Right. They which thought, makes a lot of sense. They thought it was the psychosis for a little while. Yeah. Um, that that it was basically just like uh, people had such a deep lamentation of the loss of their limb that they were suffering this this form of psychosomatic experience but now they're like no this is real yeah we have seen it um 
there's also stimulation of the nerves around the, the area, uh-huh. um, which kind of confuse the pain signals so they don't make it to the brain. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, but it's it's a real thing, and apparently it's awful. Yeah, it's it's way more common than I thought. That was like my biggest surprise in all this. Yeah, I thought it was like, oh, that's super rare, but apparently it's kind of rare if you don't experience phantom limb pain. Yeah. So back to the operating room. Uh, we should probably get back in there. He's looking. He looks fine. You have any junior mints on you? No, that's okay. Oh, very nice. Uh, so now you've cut through the skin, you've cut through the muscle, you've cut through the nerves, and done all your work to try and make sure that the nerves are not going to cause phantom pain. As much as you can. As much as you can. Now you have to cut the blood vessels. Yeah. Right? And you want to ligate them. Sure. Or cauterize. Right. <laughs> Probably ligate them yeah. if you don't want to. Uh, although I'm sure there's cauterization too as well. well. I think if you're trapped in the woods or something, there might be. No, but I think like they even have like a um, little tools to cauterize blood vessels. Like a wood burning set? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but either way, you're going to stop the flow of blood out the open end of these blood vessels now because that's yeah. not good. Um, and you tie those off and you want to avoid as many blood vessels as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, that don't need to be amputated because they still bring blood to the healthy tissue. Sure. And blood's chock full of nutrients, which is how these things, this tissue keeps alive. That's right. Uh, and then there's only one thing left, my friend. Oh, man. That's the old bone. So they get out the old bone saw, mm-hmm. and um, when you cut the bone, like you said, you, you're going to wrap the muscle around it, so you want a nice, smooth surface. You don't want any kind of jagged edges. Yeah. So they're going to smooth it out. I don't know what they use. Probably some kind of sander. Sure. And they sand it down. Remember, start start low with your sandpaper number and work your way up. Oh, is there more grit in the lower numbers? More grit. Yeah. Like an 80 sandpaper is super rough and like a... a 200 is super fine. Super fine. I think that's right. Sure. If I got this wrong, I'm going to... I think you're right. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, you really want to smooth out that bone because it, it's going to keep um, the the amputation site from healing. Yeah. Uh, if it's a jagged edge just rubbing up against muscle and nerves and blood vessels and all that, it's not good. No. So you um, have it nice and sanded. You arrange the muscles around it, mm-hmm. and then you uh, tie the skin off. Well, you close the skin. Yeah. Um, and frequently, if they think that there there's a high risk of infection, they'll just kind of temporarily close the skin. Yeah. We're leaving a tube to drain the the, the um the almost inevitable uh, liquids that build up. Sure. Um, and then if if they watch it and like no infection comes along, then they'll permanently sew it up. Yeah. And of course. For the next several weeks, you're going to be closely monitored for infection. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to leave you alone. They're going to bother you every single day, probably. Yeah. Checking on your, uh, what was the word? Not stump. Residual limb. Residual limb. Your, your resid. Uh, occasionally, <laughs> they will take off the wrong limb. Should we go ahead and talk about this? Yeah. Uh, just in October of 2013 in Brazil, guy got it, the wrong leg removed. Man. And the daughter said, hey, you removed the wrong leg. So they said, you're right. And they removed his other leg. And now you own this hospital. And now he has no legs. That is crazy. And it said the family plans to sue. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, my dad got a knee replaced, and I went and visited him before the operation, and he had, um, like, no written on his on the kneecap that he did was it. supposed to remain intact. No, I think one of the nurses did for him or something. I think it's kind of typical. 
Well, it, it's one of the things they do. I read this article from 2010, um, and this is in Colorado alone. This is not nationwide or anything. Okay. Over six and a half years um, in Colorado alone, they operated on uh, the wrong patient at least 25 times and on the wrong body part 107 times. Wow. And um, that's a six and a half year period. And they studied uh, close to 30,000 medical records. And um, all the mistakes, of course, are traced back to miscommunication. It's mm-hmm. never apparently anything but that. Right. It's never the doctor was super drunk. <laughs> no. Uh, and a lot of times it's not even the surgeon, uh, we should point out. Um, it's the support staff or other doctors that make this mistake. Oh, yeah, throw them under the bus. <laughs> but so there's a uh, thing now. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is an uh, initiative called Sign Your Sight, which mm-hmm. is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, well, sort of. It, it, the surgeon actually initials the surgical site um, for you to see and uh, and say, yes, this is the bad leg. Yeah, and you could be like, uh, you're the one who told me that yeah. I have to lose my leg, is it? <laughs> uh, and then uh, the Joint Commission is a nonprofit group, um, and they have a protocol now called a timeout, a pre-surgery timeout, which is where <laughs> literally everyone just pauses and goes, okay, this is what we're doing, right? This is re- correct, right? That's smart. Yeah, I'm surprised it wasn't the protocol anyway, but yeah. I'm glad it is now. Well, you know, doctors, they're all go, go, go with their jargon and their white coats and all that. Yeah, they got to hit the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> get drunk. Listen to us. So, uh, <laughs> okay. so it does happen. And so you, you can write it on your own leg or you can ask for the timeout or whatever. Sure. Well, I think they should give you the timeout either way. It's not as rare as you think. Uh, right. So, um, let's say that they've successfully amputated the correct leg. Uh, there's a recovery period as well. Sure. Um, you know, the little white bandage that's like, uh, like a, a cap, like an inverted cap? No. Uh, well, it's called a compression bandage. Oh, yeah, sure. It's like uh, athletes wear them now, like a compression sleeve. Right. This one doesn't have a hole on one side. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, and the compression raises, it increases the blood pressure around the site. Yeah. Um, which uh, helps prevent infection. Yeah. It reduces swelling, of course. Yeah. Um, which is a big deal. Yeah. And then also you um, you will be moved about quite a bit while you're in the hospital recovering because they want to keep your leg circulating, your blood circulating, and not not necessarily your leg. I just always think of a leg amputation. Really? Yeah. I always think of arm. Huh. Probably because my friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um so once you get home, you're going to start meeting with the therapist yeah. because physical therapy is a big deal. And it's not just maintaining motion in your uh, residual limb, but also bulking up the other parts of your body that are going to have to kind of step in a little bit sure. to, to make up for that um, that shortfall. Yeah. And apparently, aside from just strength training, they do real world training like, you know, you got to get out of bed and dress yourself yeah. now without your left leg. So right. let's see you do it. Um do it. <laughs> and I don't think we mentioned either. There's, You might meet with a uh, a brain therapist before and after as well. A psychiatrist? Yeah, to help you along because sure. it's, a, it's a weird thing to not have a limb anymore. Yeah. I'm sure there's almost mandatory counseling for something like that. Yeah, probably so. Because I'm sure also, like, even if you go into it like, all right, I can do this. I'm good with this. I think very few people come out of it with the uh, kind of aplomb and... 
and just go get them spirit of people like Aaron Ralston or yeah. the girl from Georgia who had um, necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah. Who like just managed to like keep her spirits up. I think it's probably very easy to sink into a post surgery depression. Yeah. And that would need to be have an eye kept on it. Sure. Um, if you go through all this physical therapy and you go through your uh, psychiatry therapy and you're doing great. <laughs> Was you Actually, say a brain therapist? Yeah, brain therapist. I like that better. Um, you will be, uh, you may have to work, uh, with your prosthetist if you want a prosthetic limb. And these days, they're not one size fits all, like the old days. Yeah. Like here, you know, here's this wood leg. It's a little <laughs> longer than you might want, but that's okay. Yeah, timber uh, toe. Exactly. These days, they're gonna fit it very much <laughs> might, for you. It's a little longer than you might want it. Uh, they're going to fit it for you. It's very much tailor-made. Uh, they've come, like, the advancements in prosthetics is just unbelievable. Actually, oh, sure. We might could do a show on that alone. Oh, that'd make this sweet beautiful. Um, there was also another treatment for phantom pain uh, that had to do with prosthetics. And it was, there's prosthetics that basically jack into your nerves. Yeah. And so, like, you still use the same nerves that used to make your lower leg move. But now it makes your prosthetic move, and apparently your brain's fine with that. Yeah, I mean, we covered some of this in um, uh, human uh, augmentation. Oh, yeah? Remember a while ago, like these prosthetic limbs now that are hardwired? Did we do that? I don't remember that episode. No, not not uh, the podcast when we did oh, our, yeah, yeah. our live speaking thing on sure. that. Sure. With, you know, these prosthetic limbs that are hardwired into your brain so that you can think, pick up Apple... And it picks up an apple. Right, that's right. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. So what? when when your leg, lower leg is moving, your brain apparently doesn't care whether it's flesh and blood leg or prosthetic leg. As long yeah. as it's moving, then that can help treat phantom pain as well. Wow. Yeah. So, Chuck, you imagine that you're a single guy and you uh, you lose a limb. Not a limb. me. You're, okay. I'm just saying imagine you are. Okay. And oh, you lose a limb. I do that every day. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> I know. You have a wonderful wife. I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, and you, you lose your left leg. You think that your chances of ever getting a date probably just go up in smoke, right? Some people might think that that will uh, cut that down. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, there's just a lot of people out there that like that. Yeah, you may become a lot more attractive to certain people, specifically people who uh, have, do you want to say this one? Uh, which one is it? Apo or acro? Uh, acro. Acrotomophilia. Yeah. That's an actual, there is apotemnophilia, which is, uh, we've talked about this before with body integrity identity disorder when you want to remove a limb from your own body. Yeah. That is apno, uh, apotemnophilia. Right. Like I just feel like incomplete with all my four limbs and I, uh, want a limb removed, and there are doctors that will do that. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, a lot of controversy lumping that into a paraphilia. Yeah, because the the if someone is attracted to the idea of living without a limb, it's very rarely sexually. Yeah, most of the time it's a form of hero worship, or they want to be challenged more in life, 
or they have, like you just said, a, a real identity disorder that where they've always envisioned themselves paralyzed, where they've always envisioned themselves as a double, double amputee, and they feel less than whole by being whole. Yeah, it's not any different than a transsexual saying they were born in the wrong body. It, yeah, they they bear a striking resemblance. Yeah, yeah. So the BIID and uh, what was the apotemnophilia? Yeah, are are one in the same, Pretty but much. it really shouldn't be a paraphilia. Now the other philia, acrotomophilia, that should be a paraphilia because that is a sexual attraction to people who are who um, amputees, yeah, or who are paralyzed. Yeah, if you haven't seen the David Cronenberg uh, movie Crash, yeah. Uh, I have not. So, bleh. oh, you haven't seen it? No. Oh, well, that's what it's about. Boxing Helena. Oh yeah, boy, that was awful. I haven't seen it. It was bad. I just know about it. It's like notoriously bad. Oh, I've got to see it then. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. There's. So I mean, there is some uh, reference to this in popular culture, but it was only I think 1975 when the first case of that was um, put forth. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. So it's a relatively new. And then the, going to great lengths to amputate your your own limb is even newer than that. Um, there was a Scottish doctor in 2000 who very famously amputated the healthy legs of two men. Yeah. And when he caused a huge controversy. Yeah, he he stood by it, though. He did. He said he thought about it for 18 months, and mm-hmm. when he finally did it, he had decided that it was... By far the most humane thing he could possibly do in this situation because yeah. these men were suffering by having their intact legs. Yeah, and uh, they say, I don't know if it's true, but some of them contend that no amount of mental of brain therapy yeah. can help. Right. It's like they've got to get rid of that limb. Right, or paralyze themselves. Yeah. And a lot of people do take it on themselves. There was a man who, who went down to Mexico in the 90s. I think he was 73. Um to have an amputation surgery in a hotel and died of, of gangrene as a result. Another guy successfully amputated his own leg with a log splitter. Wow. People will, will go to great lengths and do what we would consider self-harm, whereas they're really like fulfilling their identity. So it yeah. raises that question, like in that specific situation, is medicine harming people by carrying out these amputations cleanly yeah. and uh, professionally, or are you just giving in to somebody's delusions and, and really making things worse? Yeah. Supposedly, the evidence is after surgery, these people feel good. They feel great. They feel yeah. the way that they're supposed to feel, supposedly. Yeah. So it's hard to argue that you're doing them harm by carrying out the surgery. Yeah. And again, those are two very different things. The uh, wanting to remove your own limb to feel like a complete person is not the same as the the sexualization uh, and attraction to, um, like in Penthouse Magazine. Remember in this article? What article was this, by the way? It was an Atlantic article from 2000. Yeah, called The True Self. Really good. Oh, was it? I don't, I thought it was something else, but yeah. Or no, maybe that was a subheading, but it was a, it was a great article. Um, and it's nothing new, the sexual side of things. Um, going back to this dude, Richard von Kraft, uh, Ebbing. He was uh, a researcher of uh, sexual pathology, and he started uh, categorizing and cataloging in 1886 in, um, I, I don't know if it was a book or just a medical journal called uh, Psychopathia Sexualis. And, of course, everything from bestiality to necrophilia is in there. But 
to Strabismus. Apparently, Descartes had a, a thing for um, women with crossed eyes. Yeah. That, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. But there are sexual things all the way back uh, then. Um, this one 28-year-old engineer was excited by the sight of a woman's disfigured feet. Mm. Um, and another guy pretended to be crippled or lame is what they called it back then. Yeah, and apparently that's still a thing. Like if you go onto the web and start looking up um, acro- acrotomophilia, you're going to find there are pretenders, people who use wheelchairs and leg braces and crutches even though they don't need them. Yeah. Um, and those are frequently people who are also deemed wannabes, who are, I guess, pre-event amputees. Yeah. They're still in tech, but they don't want to be. And then there's devotees, yeah, who are the, acrotomophiliacs. Are, yeah, those are the sexual... Uh, the ones who want to be with amputees because yes. they're sexually aroused by them. Exactly. Yeah. And it's big on the internet. Yeah. It's um, This article points out, and there's probably been more medical research on it since then, but... He points out that in legit medical circles, there's not a lot of information. But if you get on the Internet, there are all kinds of chat rooms yeah. and places where you can find amputee porn. Yeah. If that's what your thing is. Hey, if that's what your thing is, I'm, I can't really see anything wrong with it. I was in, surprised, though, by the one uh, how the people that it's not sexual, but they just want to be challenged more. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I wonder if that kind of falls into a um, the category of uh, Munchausens, uh, where they want yeah. they want the sympathy or added attention or something like that that comes with being paralyzed or being having, being an amputee. I think pretenders for sure. Yeah, like if you're walking around on crutches and you're just fine, right? You're, you're looking for attention. But yeah, like you said, there are some people out there who report wanting to lose a body part because they want to be more physically challenged. Yeah. All righty. We should else? do one on paraphilias sometime. I've always wanted to. Yeah. Is that just any kind of sexual fetish? Yeah. Everything. That's everything. And there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> yes. Basically, any weird thing you can come up with, there's a paraphilia for it. Yeah. I bet you're right. Yeah. Like I like, well, never mind. I think it's a good way to end this one. If you want to learn more about amputations, you can type that word into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, let's see, since I said search bar, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, Yeah, this is kind of long, but it's appropriate. Um, I'm going to call it uh, One Testicle Down. Was there an amputation? Well, not so much. You'll see. This is from Rich. Uh, This came off the uh, Castration Podcast. And he says, guys, when I was about 12 years old, I got kicked in the grapes by a particularly violent classmate. My parents took me to the hospital, and after a bunch of uh, tests, they determined I had testicular torsion. It's when a, a male's testicles twist around inside the scrotum, essentially twisting the wires that connect it to your inner workings, and it cuts off the blood supply. Uh-huh. And like we said, it's not any good. You don't want to cut off the blood supply. No, um, it's where tissue dies. That's right. Uh, it was too late to save his injured testicle, so they set a date for surgery to remove it. Uh, but it wasn't until the end of August, apparently, because there was no rush, because it didn't like make anything worse. Oh, there'd be a rush if it happened to me. <laughs> I'd be like, look, let's just get this over with. Oh, I know. Ah. 
So uh, he said he was stuck in bed for an entire summer, and his family didn't have working air conditioning yet either. And his scrotum was the size of a grapefruit. Oh, my God. Uh, walking, moving, laughing, or even breathing heavily caused some of the worst pain I've experienced. Uh, so he had the surgery, and it said it had two purposes. One, to remove the injured and now useless testicle. And two, to affix the remaining healthy testicle to the inside of the scrotum to prevent the possibility of future torsion. So he felt a lot better physically after the surgery, but it was very hard to cope mentally and socially. Uh, I think I only told my co- uh, closest friends what had happened. Uh, I told the rest of my school that I had knee surgery or something. I felt incredibly embarrassed. Um, and remember, I was at the most awkward puberty-ridden age for something like this to happen to my private parts. Poor kid. I know. Uh, then two things happened. The first thing was acceptance. I don't remember if anything in particular brought it on, but I distinctly remember the day where I finally thought to myself, you know what? Who cares? And at that moment, his <laughs> testicle grew back. <laughs> Twice the size as before. <laughs> uh, then I did something that still surprises me now that I think about it. I opened an AOL Instant Messenger. Um, this is back in the day, of course. Sure. Uh, and picked out one of my high school friends at random and told them before I could chicken out. As soon as I told this random person, I felt a huge weight lift off my chest. Nice. Uh, and then the second thing was surgical. Uh, I opted for elective surgery to put in a fake ball. A nudicle. <laughs> a nudicle. Yeah. A human nudicle. A human nudicle. Sure. Uh, or a prosthesis made of silicon. silicone. Silicone. Uh, it was mainly for cosmetic purposes. Uh, and I was happy to, that I did it. Even now, you can't really tell a difference unless you touch them. And once somebody's in that situation where they could feel the difference, it really doesn't make a difference anyway. Wink, okay. wink. Yeah. So uh, he says now he is very proud to have one real testicle and one fake one and he went on in, to write about how uh, like to tell the kids out there hey if something like this happens to you then you know it's not the biggest deal and you're still a complete person and he wonders if he would have even gotten the nudicle if he would have been older you know and not been at that awkward age oh yeah he says he probably didn't think like he would have yeah he doesn't regret it right uh, he doesn't regret it no he says I'm really proud of it and uh I wonder how many of your I'm listeners of only, have, only have one testicle. I'll put a little crown on it <laughs> every once in a while. So and that is birthday. Rich. And uh, Rich, thank you for your courage in trying to tell people, especially kids. If yeah, way like to go, happens, Rich. That, you know, it's not the end of the world. I mean, that is a rough thing to go through. Heck yeah. Man. Well, hats off to you, Rich. Yeah. Crown's off. <laughs> uh, if you want to be brave like Rich, you can tell us about something that uh, you overcame in your life. We love hearing about stuff like that. Um, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast if it's a very short story. Uh, you can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. And you can join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. <laughs> For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. With over 100,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com is a leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Go to AudiblePodcast.com slash NoStuff, K-N-O-W-S-T-U-F-F, to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.